Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with John Petrocelli on the life-changing science of detecting bullshit. First, I wanted to remind you about our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the food and beverage, history, psychology, or science and medicine category for episode number 120 with Michael Moss on Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. I'm Michael Moss. I'm the author of Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. John V. Petrocelli is an experimental social psychologist and professor of psychology at Wake Forest University who specializes in studying bullshit. He's also the author of the new book, The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit. John, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Great, great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, John. And look, we'll get into the details of this book to be sure, but I am fascinated by one detail of this book. Most books with a cuss word in the title will censor part of that word, but you spell it out in on that front cover. How much of a conversation went into whether to include the actual word bullshit in the title of this book? Yeah. Well, my editor and I, we we never had that conversation huh. uh, because I right from the beginning, um, I've been doing research on bullshitting and bullshit detection for about a decade now, um, and right right from the beginning, um, I said, look, this is, this is a technical term now that's, uh, that originates in, in philosophy and that it's, an, it's a focus of empirical study in psychology. Um, and it is a technical term and there's, um, there's dozens of articles, um, in the professional periodicals on, on the topic. Uh, there's not a lot of empirical research on the topic. There's a lot of um, lip service and armchair philosophy um, on the topic, but but yes, it's sin- since 1986, since Harry Frankfurt's seminal article on bullshit. It's um, I mean he took he took the the term very seriously, and and I don't believe there's a term that that uh, demands the attention that it deserves. I mean you can use malarkey, baloney, nonsense, flim flam, um, all of those, but but they don't. If you actually look at the literature, a lot of those things are also technical terms, and they they have different meanings. Um, so so we actually never had that conversation, and and just went went for it from the beginning. Um, and so I, I'm trying to change that. I'm trying to change the <laughs> the social uh, beliefs and and attitudes about the term um, because I think it is a major problem that we have uh, societal. Uh, problem and uh, I think if we we decided that it's no longer a dirty word, um, I think we will get much further along in calling the stuff when when we when we hear it and we see it. I do want to have a conversation about that at the end of our chat today, but before that, though, I think it's good to provide some context for the rest of this conversation. What is bullshit? Okay, so bullshit is a a term that we use to indicate that something has been communicated without regard or concern for truth, genuine evidence, or established knowledge. Um, so the behavior of bullshitting 
could involve a broad range of rhetorical strategies designed to do just that, to, to disregard truth, evidence, and established knowledge. So this may come out in the form of exaggerating one's skills or knowledge or competence in a particular domain, um, or simply talking about things that one doesn't know much about um, in order to impress other people, um, to fit in, to connect with other people, or to influence or persuade, or to simply hide the fact that one doesn't know what it is that they're talking about. Um, and so we have lots of situations, social context in which people's um, obligation to share an opinion, to provide an opinion on something, that that exceeds their knowledge on the topic. So, so that's, that's what we mean by bullshitting, is, is simply, simply communicating something without any attention or concern for truth, genuine evidence, or established knowledge. You write that people, and I think the example you use is Kyrie Irving in the Flat Earth conversation that he unfortunately had a few years ago, will often peddle bullshit because they don't properly utilize scientific method. For those who are unaware, what is scientific method and how does it work? All right. So scientific method can start with a, a basic question. Yeah. You know, is the is the earth flat or is, is it round or is it shaped? you know, like a basketball or a hockey puck. Um, so you start with the research question, um, and then you take a look at the established knowledge. What is the, the established knowledge on the research question? Sometimes there's, there's nothing. Sometimes there's a little bit. Sometimes there's a lot. Um, in the case of the shape of the earth, there's quite a bit. I mean, we have evidence from multiple uh, disciplines, uh, all pointing to the same conclusion. Um, we have satellite pictures. We have, you know, basic experiments that you can you can run in your backyard during the day um, with a pencil in the ground. <laughs> you know, I mean, we have all all of these types of things. So, so you, so you look at the the existing literature, um, but oftentimes when you find a gap in the knowledge, there's something you still or you may still have a question. Um, what you do is you de develop a hypothesis. So it's it's an you know an, an educated estimation of what the answer of that of that research question is, and then you design an experiment to test it um, in in such a way that you may observe something tangible and something um, something that you that you can collect uh, systematic data on whether or not you know that that whether or not your hypothesis is correct or wrong. And so it's data that speaks directly to whether or not your hypothesis, your maybe your favorite answer or uh, maybe an uh, answer that you're trying to, to debunk, that you've got data that directly uh, addresses that. Um, and then you analyze that data. You analyze it. Usually in psychology, we, in social sciences and hard sciences, we analyze the data statistically. We ask whether or not, well, is the variation in the data, is it due to chance or does it appear as though that the data that we have collected uh, gives us a conclusion that's, that's, that's greater than chance? And usually we accept um, only those things that are less than a 5% chance uh, of, of occurrence uh, that we would accept, okay, that there is support for the hypothesis. The hypothesis is never proven it's just it does 
does the data that we collected, does it support the hypothesis? Uh, we can also reject the hypothesis. So if we run an experiment or a series of experiments and we find that, nope, there's, there's no evidence greater than chance probability in favor of our, our hypothesis, we, might, we may reject the hypothesis. We would say that, well, this particular experiment rejects it. Um, and then w when we've got something wor worthy of sharing, then we share it. And that's, that's basically the, uh, and you would share it with the, the rest of the scientific community. And this is the part that the scientific method that people often forget. So scientists, even social scientists, we love to, uh, to counter and argue and debunk each other's science. So once the rest of the scientific community gets their hands on your findings that you've reported and shared with the field, um, they'll be the very first to tell you that you're wrong, or, or they'll be the very first to conduct subsequent experiments to say, well, Trey, you're right in this case, but you're, you're, you're wrong under these conditions. You know, so we, we call those things uh, moderators or uh, conditional situations or context in which the effect does or does not occur. So it's kind of like a light switch. Um, does, you know, does, does the effect that we observe, does it occur in this context? Well, what about that context? And you, and you can find differences. Well, so, replication is a very important part of the process, too, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in my field of, of experimental social psychology, typically you, you need to demonstrate support for your hypothesis. Well, at least I would say on average, at least three or four times before, mm -hmm. before you have a, a good shot at publication. Um, and that's pretty demanding. I mean, and it's not just a, a simple replication. It's like, all right, well, let's take it. Let's take it. And uh, we've shown that there's a relationship in study one, study two. Well, let's let's try to manipulate these variables directly. And that's what makes a study an experiment is we say, well, variable A, we think, has an effect on the outcome. Well, let's try to manipulate variable A. And when we, we turn the variable A off, we don't get the effect. When we turn variable A on, we do get the effect. And let's see if we can observe that a few thousand times. <laughs> then, then we have confidence that, okay, there's a causal link between variable A and the outcome. Gosh, I love this stuff. I could spend the rest of the hour talking about this, but I don't want to get too far off the beaten path here. <laughs> Chapter one uh, of your book is titled Costs of Bullshit. Wine can be delicious, but as you point out, it's also bullshit a lot of the time. How did former Humboldt State University statistics professor Robert Hodgson show as much with an experiment involving three blindfolded wine experts and three glasses of wine? Yeah, so if you've got um, the same glass of uh, or the, a, a single bottle of wine, um, even among experts, um, you can blindfold them or maybe not even blindfold them. You can take, uh, if it's a white wine, you can put a, a, a dye in one. And, and if, if, if experts, so-called ex wine experts see that, okay, this is a white wine or this is a red wine, they immediately have different expectations of those wines. Um, or you could say, well, I'm going to have you um, taste three different glasses of wine and we're going to blindfold you and we're going to tell you a little bit about the wine you they form again form expectations it could be the same glass of <laughs> it could be from the same bottle right and and to the extent that you get variation um in the ratings from the same raters 
right? That's evidence that um, that there's there's it's there's there's not a science, and and there's more maybe of an art to to tasting wine and reporting what it tastes like. You know, it has a, a woody finish, or it's it's dry, or it's sweet. Th- those types of of descriptors that people use. Um, and from one expert to another as well, all drinking from the same bottle of wine, to the extent that you get great variation in these and, and great ratings of, from anywhere from 80 to 98 on the same bottle of wine, well, that suggests to us, well, that the validity of those research conclusions <laughs> um, are, are in question, right? So uh, what, as a social scientist, we look at that data and we say, there, there's nothing conclusive here, right? But the way that wine uh, and other products are written up, or what they actually, what their ingredients are, and and what they might remind us of, and and what when when it would be paired well with fish or steak, um, is really all over the place, and it's just a it's just a sort of contextual and very subjective way of of rating an experience. It's, it's not something that is going to be weighed like a scale um, at the same weight, you know, give or take a half a gram, you know, <laughs> each time. So, so, so that to the extent that there's this great variation, it doesn't make a lot of sense to put a lot of decision weight into one description over another, even if it's coming from the same even if you got like three wines being rated by the by the same so-called expert, um, and so and there's there's dozens of studies that show this that the reliability of these ratings and the descriptions of these ratings are really all over the place. So what can you really make of that? Um, I argue that 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 it's more of a it's more of a marketing scheme than it is any particular anything that that resembles science. It's much more subjective than most want to admit. And wine, of course, is also subject to price markups. Markups are a standard and necessary business practice, but when does the increase in price become bullshit? And why do consumers accept this sort of gouging? Yeah, well, I've used the term bullshit markups to indicate that so that pretty much the maximum that people are willing to pay for a product before it is that they start to ask themselves, wait a second, what, why is this product so costly? Um, and, and so bullshit in that sense is a way of reasoning in addition to a way of communicating. So if, if you just fork over the, you know, the $8 or more sometimes for the Starbucks coffee, right? And you don't ever ask yourself, well, gee, why does it cost this this much? Um, then, then you're paying the bullshit markup, okay? Because anywhere between a uh, hundred and two hundred percent markup on a product is usually pretty reasonable, um, and that's that's that represents the risk that the that the sellers are willing to take um, in in stock loading that product, right? And so most people think that a hundred to two hundred percent markup is is actually quite reasonable. But when they take a look more carefully at, you know, why a product costs what it does, oftentimes they don't always feel so good about paying that price. Okay, so so if we 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 take a few steps back and say, well, 
how is it that um, coffee can cost sometimes maybe two dollars and fifty cents a cup? You know what what is versus eight dollars, and and how many middle people are being paid here, right? Or and how is it so cheap to begin with? Um, and you look at well, well, a lot of coffee beans are picked in Colombia, right? And a lot of a lot of people picking those coffee beans are actually children, and some of those children are kidnapped or sold by their family to to pick coffee beans. And then you try to drink your cup of coffee; it doesn't feel so good, <laughs> right? Or if you feel that you've been cheated um, in a in a sale where you thought, okay, well, I got a good deal on this new car because I, I, I negotiated and paid $2,000 less than what the sticker price was, right? It's likely that the car dealer still made a lot of money on that car um, because when they've, they've, when you said, well, I don't, I don't need all of these extra things. All, I don't need the mag wheels and the, and the, you know, the leather seats. I just want the stripped down version of the car. Um, they think, great, I, this is going to, going to be an easy sale. And they, and as long as the seller thinks that, or I'm sorry, as long as the buyer thinks that they're getting a good deal, um, the seller is usually happy because they're going to make at least a thousand or $2,000 on, on a new car that they, that they were probably willing to go even, even lower. And usually there's no one in the back there's no manager in the back that they need to go talk to whenever you're negotiating. Okay. That's just, that's just a bunch of, of, of window dressing. Right. And, and that's such bullshit that pretty much everybody knows oh. it at this point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's the, there's no supervisor making the person you're dealing with uh, uh, that's, that's doing all of the paperwork. That's who's selling you the car. It's not, uh, you know, but, but they'll try to be your best friend. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and speak with the supervisor who's not in the back room anyway. So, um, so yeah, to the extent that people are willing to pay that without asking. Okay. So, uh, I have a friend that, that I do research with at, at Pepperdine university. He's in law and we, we, we take a look at consumer laws, prote- consumer protection laws. And we've run several experiments showing like, well, how much are celebrities actually being paid um, or how, for doing commercials? And what, what, to what extent are insurance uh, agents, are they making money on uh, things that, that they also have insurance for? Or what about people who um, are advocating for stocks and they actually own stocks? So anytime where you have a conflict of interest or a vested interest when people find out about those things they're less well they don't they don't feel as well about purchasing the product and they're not as willing to to pay as much for the product they immediately take a few backpedaled steps and say i i don't really feel so good about this because there's a conflict of interest here or i could see there's a vested interest in the person who's pushing this um and so this all factors in to this, this bullshit markup that we often ignore. We just think, all right, this is the price. Um, and very rarely do we ask. Now, you could do the same thing at, at a restaurant where you pay for, speaking of wine, I mean, the, the markup on wine in a restaurant is, is 
I, I mean, it's in the thousands of percents. Yeah, I right? think you Just wrote for, it. Th- I think you glass. wrote. I think you wrote at least a thousand percent. Yes, and and people just they they just pay it right. But until we collectively start to ask and say like, well, why is it that that we're at being pay, we're at being asked to pay these great prices? We're going to continue to do it, right? So so it's just the flip side of bullshitting. So bullshitting, I'm communicating without regard for truth, genuine evidence, established knowledge. Well, I can make a decision without those things as well. Um, and, and a lot of times this comes in the form of paying bullshit markups. Chapter two is titled Bullability. What is bullability? So bullability is, is like gullibility. Um, and I just did a play on words there with... So a, a credulous person is somebody who is likely to just believe anything, right? But a gullible person is someone who believes things even when there are cues to dishonesty being you know, presented right in their face. So you mm-hmm. think of my Marty McFly, right? And, and in the Back to the Future movie, who's famous for being gullible, right? Um, but, there, but Biff is always at, you know, at something where he's he's trying you know to to bully uh george mcfly right and 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 george is just not picking up on these on these subtle cues but the bullable person is someone who doesn't pick up on subtle social cues that suggest that gee trey i'm not interested in truth genuine evidence or established knowledge okay so if Rarely does someone come up to you and say, I'm not interested in truth, <laughs> genuine evidence, or established knowledge. And they, in fact, may say this very same thing that a liar says. So it can be very difficult to, to detect bullshit. Um, and the, the basic cues, though, that, that one can detect, even when we're not in communication with, with directly with the bullshitter, is one, having... Uh, a, a disregard for anything that disconfirms the claim or the assertion. All right. So, so a continual uh, dismissal of anything that counters the claim. Um, and a second thing is a sole reliance on anecdotal information and, and data. We call it anecdotal data, but it's it's not it doesn't it's not data the way we think of systematic systematically collected data in science. Right. It may just be stories. My uncle Larry smoked two packs a day for 80 years. He died at 105. Right. That's that's anecdotal data. So to solely rely on stories, anecdotes, that's a favorite tool of 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 bullshitters. Um, Also to use flowery language that we call pseudo profundity. Um, uh, Deepak Chopra is is a. Um, a favorite of mine that that uses a lot of pseudo profundity. I never uh, heard that say, term before. I love that yeah. term. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's just really a, a sort of a collage of fancy sounding uh, words that that oftentimes are syntactically and semantically correct, uh, but it really has no meaning. Um, and if you take a look at the the opposite of a assertion or statement full of pseudo profundity. Um, it's it's no more or less meaningful than than the original assertion. So if I said to you, hidden meaning transforms unparalleled abstract beauty, well, that's no more 
impressive than hidden meaning transforms unparalleled abstract ugliness, right? <laughs> so, so even if I even if the the reverse is equally true, well, and then the first one doesn't really have have any meaning, and and those things are are just senseless. They're just they're meaningless. Um, another favorite tool of bullshitters is to to magnify their own credibility. So if I talk about things that I don't know anything about, as long as I can make you think that I know what it is that I'm talking about, then it's I'm more likely to get it over on you because, um, for instance, if if we're talking about automobiles, a an auto mechanic or anyone who's not even an auto mechanic that that is talking about parts of a car that I know exists, but I don't even know what their function really is and and, and how it all works. I'm I'm an easy uh, suspect for or for being um, you know baffled with with bullshit. So because I don't know enough about it, right? So you could you could probably bullshit me pretty easily on cars and and I wouldn't know the difference. So even if you don't know what you're talking about, as long as you sound like you know what you're talking about, you can usually get it over on on people. Now, I'm not going to be able to bullshit an auto mechanic, so I'm not even going to try. They'll know that I'm you know, I'll look like a fool. They'll know that I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, so those are some of the basic tools that you can see when you're not communicating directly. But when you are directly communicating with a bullshitter, it's very, very simple. You can ask just three basic questions. The first question you should ask is what? What exactly is it that you're saying? You know, um, clarification we know is a major antidote to bullshit because what often happens is the bullshitter will start to clean up the claim. Once you repeat it back to them too, if you say, well, Trey, I hear you saying X is what you are saying X, (laughs) you know, or, or, you know, fill in the blank. When people hear themselves, then they often take a few backpedaled steps and say, well, what, what, here's what I'm really saying. Okay. And so it's great because now you're already exposing yourself to, to less bullshit. Right. So they start to clean it up typically. And then if you ask, if you get past what, and you just simply ask how, how do you know that this is true? What sort of evidence leads you to this conclusion? Okay. Um, oftentimes people aren't able to answer that question. People are not used to answering that, that kind of question. Um, but how gets at concrete level construals of genuine evidence? If you ask people why, hey, Trey, why do you believe that? Usually what you will get is an abstract, heady, kind of value-laden explanation. You won't get evidence. It's too that's too open-ended. I think it speaks to your point of asking very simple and specific questions to not give that person an that's out. Exactly. And that's what why why will do asking why questions will do that. But how it, it forces them to rely on, on evidence. And then if you get through those two and you just say, all right, well hey hey Trey, I hear you saying X, but have you considered why? Do you see how uh, you know X and Y conflict? Um, how do you reconcile those differences? Is some is it sometimes that X is true and 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 Y is 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 false and vice versa? You know, tell me more. Tell me more about that. You know, have you considered? And then all three of these questions, they're they're just designed to help diagnose 
the concern and the interest that the potential bullshitter has in truth, genuine evidence, and established knowledge. And then, and then you can make an, a, an informed decision on whether or not you're buying what it is that they're selling. At the start of this conversation, you cited Harry Frankfurt, who's a sort of father of bullshit research. And you mentioned him once again in the first couple of paragraphs of chapter three and quoting him. Bullshit is unavoidable whenever circumstances require someone to talk without knowing what he is talking about. Thus, the production of bullshit is stimulated whenever a person's obligations or opportunities to speak about some topic are more excessive than his knowledge of the facts that are relevant to the topic. You actually tested this in your, God, I love the title of this lab, your Bullshit Studies Lab at Wake Forest. What did you find? So that was the very first thing that we tested coming straight from Harry Frankfurt's uh, theory on, on bullshit is, is that simply, to what extent do people bullshit because they feel obligated? And so what we did in our experiment, we, we told half of our participants, you don't have to really do much in this study at all. We, we, we got some questions for you, but we want to remind you, just like the informed consent form said, <laughs> that you, you know, you're free to withdraw from the study at any time. We really hit them over the head with this. You can, you can withdraw at any time or you can skip any questions that you want. We really laid it on and said, you're not obligated, right? But then the other condition, what we, we asked participants to do was just to answer questions. And that we said, this is of interest to us. We want you to answer some questions. And the study involved explaining why Jim, um, just a, a fictional character, he was leading in the polls of the city council race. Uh, but at the, the last minute, he decided to, to withdraw from the race. And some participants know a little bit about Jim and others don't know anything about Jim, right? And so we asked them, what is your opinion? What do you think? Why did Jim drop out of the race? And again, we reminded half the participants, you're not obligated. You know, you can skip this part. Even in that condition, people tended to give us at least two or three thoughts for why they thought Jim dropped out of the race, right? Um, and then the other condition that we didn't ask, tell, hey, we are not obligated to do this, they, 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 obviously, they, they tended to give us about four or five thoughts. The five thoughts was the maximum. Hmm. Um, and then we told people, well, we're going to have your, your comments are going to be rated by some people who know Jim and some people who don't know Jim personally. Okay. So, and then they're going to rate, rate them for how accurate they are. Okay. And so this is how we manipulated the ease of passing bullshit. So, Again, I'm not likely to, to bullshit an auto mechanic, right? Because an auto mechanic knows much, much more about cars than I do, right? So, so it's not going to be easy to get away with. Now, I could probably bullshit my, my daughter, uh, my 12-year-old daughter on, on cars. because She knows even less than I do, <laughs> right? So, so there it'll be easy to pass bullshit. And what we found was that, that about 40% overall in the experiment. So when we ask people, hey, Trey, you wrote this thought. Here's a thought that you wrote earlier. When you wrote this thought, to what extent were you truly interested in genuine evidence? You know, when you wrote this thought, to what extent? Zero to, zero to 10. Okay. 
And what we found was that what people are at least willingly ready to commit to saying is that about 40% of the content that they generate is bullshit. All right. So 40%, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, but here's the, here's the case that we found is the only time that people refrain from bullshitting is when we hit them over the head and said, you're not obligated to do this. And they knew nothing about Jim. Okay. And when people who were going to rate their responses did know a lot about Jim. Okay. So, so only when you heighten the, the, the difficulty of getting away with bullshit and you make people feel unobligated to share an opinion. Did we significantly reduce bullshit? All of the other cases were in the 40% of, of the content that, that people generated that they scored themselves as bullshit. So these aren't social perceivers. These aren't people who are looking in and, and reporting Oh, you know, Trey, you know, maybe Trey's bullshit score is 80%. <laughs> he thinks it's 40%. You know, I think it is actually much, much greater, but, but 40% that, that people are willing to report about themselves. I think that's quite remarkable. When you, when you look at the, the standard of comparison of lying, most people are not going to report to you that 40% of the content that they generated is a lie. Okay, it's it's going to be much much lower than that, probably less than ten percent. So, um, in the same in the same type of context, um, so Frankfurt was right. Uh, he theorized that that people will generate bullshit anytime they feel obligated. We found not only that, but also whenever it's generally easy to get away with. Like if I don't feel I don't feel that I'm going to be challenged on this content. And I'm not going to sound so much the fool if I throw this out there. Um, then people, I mean, this, this just the gloves are off, and and the, and they go to town with mountains of bullshit. Speaks to a lack of accountability, which is an enormous problem in this world on a, on the whole, but especially with information. Chapter four is titled "Bullshit Artist." At the start of this chapter, you list three different people: the aforementioned Deepak Chopra. Donald Trump, who is obviously, uh, he is a big one. And Dr. Douglas Bicklin? Bicklin. Yes. Who is Bicklin, and what does he have to do with something called facilitated communication? Yeah, Trey, this one is really interesting because uh, when I first learned about facilitated communication, um, and then and after it had actually been debunked, I thought that was it. I thought this, this doesn't exist anymore. Um, and it was about 20 years later, I found out that, oh my goodness, it still exists. And what, what facilitated communication is, is, is very popular among uh, severely, um, uh, severe autistic children um, and, their, and their caretakers who believe that autistic children have a, a lot of uh, communication uh, problems. They, they're very, it's, it's very difficult for them to communicate anything coherent. Um, mood swings are very common um, that also get mixed in with um, uh, misrecognition of what it is they're trying to communicate. So we're talking about severe communication disorders, right? Um, and the belief among facilitated communicators is that if I hold the child's hand steady, uh, just by maybe holding their sleeve or just holding their wrist gently, that they can type out 
messages on a keyboard. Okay. Um, and, and then this is a way that we can communicate with them. Right. Um, and it was allegedly discovered that some of these autistic children that had never learned to speak coherently um, could read novels, um, could write poetry beautifully, and could respond to all kinds of things, um, just, just like we're communicating right now. But, but it was shown right away um, by, by scientific community coming, from, again, from a lot of different angles that there was not a single hit or not a single correct response that could be typed. If I said, all right, I'm going to put a wall between the facilitator and the, uh, and the autistic child, they're going to sit at the end of, of a wall. So at the very, at the end of their perspective, we can put pictures on the left and the right at a, maybe a six foot distance that the child can see, the child can see maybe uh, a book and the facilitator could see uh, a car, right? And what is supposed to happen is that the child is supposed to type book because that's what they see, right? But 100% of the time, and the best studies that were conducted showed that, the that what the facilitator saw, car, was what was being typed. Not a single hit or correct response was generated um, when the two pictures differed. The only time that, they, that the response was correct was when the facilitator saw a picture that was similar or the exact same picture as, as the autistic child had, had, had witnessed. So this was debunked very easily, very readily, um, but Douglas Bicklin had, had been at Syracuse University and was pushing this method since the, I think, believe the late 1980s. And it was just a huge, you know, undertaking. They developed a center for this that still exists today. Um, and there's, I mean, there's thousands of so-called trained facilitators that are Allegedly, they think they, they think they buy into this, that they're actually helping autistic children type what it is that that they are having difficulty verbalizing. Um, and there's there's no evidence whatsoever supporting this method. Um, it's been completely uh, debunked. I mean, dozens and dozens of times. But Bicklin has gone on, you know, and pushed facilitated communication. And again, if people want to believe something, just like, just like believing that, you know, this $100 bottle of wine really is worth $100 and because it's so good and it's, and it's a 40-year-old bottle of wine. <laughs> if people want to believe something, it's very, very easy to get them to accept information that's not tied at all to truth, genuine evidence, or established knowledge. Um, so that's where facilitated communication is. It's very similar um, to the early days of uh, um, there was a horse uh, called Clever Hans that was apparently responding yes or no to lots of questions <laughs> from from the given given by um, a questioner. But the trainer didn't realize that he was giving the the horse nonverbal cues 
that were consistent with the correct response, yes or no. So he would kind of lift his, he would lift his front hoof, you know, to respond yes or no, like maybe one or two taps, but the, the horse didn't understand what the questions actually were. But for a long time, there was the belief that, oh, clever Hans understands the questions and he's responding appropriately. But it was the same basic mechanism that was going on. It's not that clever Hans, the horse, was responding it was his it was his trainer it was his facilitator in the same way facilitated communication has survived um and it 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 doesn't seem to go away but it's all it's all built on bullshit trey Hmm. this one surprised me a little bit john but i also have to admit i don't watch a ton of these and your explanation as to why made complete sense when i read it in the bullshit detection wheelhouse chapter why are ted talks often effective peddlers of bullshit if you look at ted talks uh a large majority of them are inspirational uh they involve charismatic speakers um they often have uplifting messages um and they often sell the idea that everyone can do this right i mean there's i mean the large majority of the of the talks are they seem like motivational talks that, you know, you can be anything that you want to be. And, and all you have to do is be motivated, <laughs> be your best self, you know, and it's, just, and it makes people feel good. Right. Um, and I've argued, I mean, now those are not necessarily full of bullshit. I think a lot of them are, but not, but not necessarily uh, focusing on that makes it bullshit. It's, it's the way in which people reason from again oftentimes anecdotal data there's often a story or two involved that supports the claim or the assertion um, and that's all you really get with the ted talk is a couple of anecdotes that support the claim and there's very little reference to genuine evidence there's lots of explanation um, and there's and there's lots of pseudo profundity thrown around um, as well in, in the book i i know a, I, I pick on the this idea of, of autophagy, which has been used as the mechanism explaining why intermittent fasting works, right? And this is how supposedly how we can burn fat faster, right? <laughs> With you know by by not eating, uh, but maybe an eight-hour window during the day, right? But there's no genuine, <laughs> there's no scientific evidence supporting autophagy at all and certainly not in in humans right but this term has been used in a lot of ted talks on on that support intermittent fasting which people do lose weight through intermittent fasting but it has nothing to do with autophagy oftentimes it it has has, to do with caloric deficit that's all it has to do with it it does help people reduce their caloric intake during the day and if you do that long enough you're going to lose weight and it can have it's, a generally positive effect on self-discipline also, which can also play into exercise and some other things too. But to your point, you're right. The autophagy claim is utter bullshit. Yeah. So, and a lot of these, a lot of TED Talks are more about sort of, I think, entertaining and making people feel good and and and, and motivating them uh, to believe that that they can have better lives in some way. And, and, and those things, they're uplifting and people want to hear that. So I, th- I think um, they are, a lot of them are, completely full of bullshit um and uh but they survive because they just have the 
the, the key elements that people want to hear. And that's one of the reasons why bullshit is so difficult to detect. If you're communicating with someone whose attitudes and opinions align with your own, or if you happen to like that person, or you find something that you do like about them because of the way they, they're uplifting in, in their, their presentation, it's very difficult to detect bullshit because your mind just doesn't go towards critical thinking, scientific reasoning. It just goes to, oh, this sounds cool and maybe I can use it. And, and that's why I think they're so successful. What is the Fermi estimation and why is it a good tool to deploy on bullshitters from time to time? Yeah, so the Fermi estimation is, is an old sort of, it's sometimes referred to as calculations on the back of an envelope or a napkin that they're just simple questions that you can ask yourself. It doesn't even have to involve numbers, but a lot of the example, good examples involve numbers. And people will find that they know things that they didn't think that they actually knew. Just by asking sort of basic questions, say, well, what do I know? How can I use what I know to make reasonable estimates about things? So one example that I'll, I give my students in my judgment decision-making course, I, I say, well, what is the circumference of the earth in miles, you know, and, and I nudge them a little bit just to get them started. Right. I said, have any of you traveled? Do any, do any of you travel at all? Have you ever flown from, you know, one, one city on the East coast to another city on the West coast? You know, how long did that take you? You know, and, and I say, Oh, maybe, you know, four hours, five hours or something. And what's the, what's the distance that you travel? Or I mean, ask, well, how many time zones are there? What time is it in uh, New York if it is, you know, one o'clock in California? And most people know, oh, okay, well, it's it's four o'clock in New York then. That's the, oh, so it's, oh, yeah, and it's, it's like 3000 miles somewhere, something like that. And oh, oh, there's 24 time zones. Okay. So maybe each time zone has roughly about a thousand miles, you know, if you measure it from the, from the equator and most students will find, they'll estimate somewhere between 23 and 25,000 miles. And that's, that's what it is. I think it's, it's closer to, to 25 than it is 23, but, but, that's a reasonable way of kind of, of just kind of reasoning through the problem, kind of taking basic things that you do know to then estimate something that's, that's reasonable, to come to a reasonable estimate. Um, and people will find that they can do this sort of thing quite easily if you just kind of ask, all right, well, what's the next, what do I know? And then the what, now what's the next question? And I would recommend this method only when you've got uh, minimal time, right? Because we could certainly, we could just go to the internet, right? And find out what, <laughs> what, what most, most of the precise estimates are of the circumference of the earth. But on, on questions like that, where it just sounds like, well, geez, there's, I have really no idea. Most people find that they actually do have a quick, pretty good idea if they just use a, a couple of quick critical thinking skills and, and, and reasoning skills to, to think through it. You write that by tolerating opposing views, open-minded people are sensitive to the possibility that their own biases shape their conclusions. But it is important to have conversations with opposing views. 
That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change your or my mind, but it gives you a better idea of where that other person is coming from. So my question for you on this, John, is where is the line when allowing someone to have an opposing viewpoint becomes harmful for you? Well, I guess having an opposing um, viewpoint would be important only to the extent that it's going to lead me to make decisions about important things or about things that I actually care about, right? Um, and, I, and I do think that, that it is important to be open-minded. Um, we, we certainly wouldn't ask new research questions and, and learn through the scientific method if we didn't have open minds. You know, it's, 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 so it's important to, ha- to be very open-minded and to not live in this uh, common echo chamber that people surround themselves with. Um, that can be very dangerous because now you're not letting a lot of the good stuff in. You're not letting the things that an open-minded individual would allow in. Now, at the same time, I don't think we should be so open-minded that our brains fall out, right? Richard Dawkins is famous for for suggesting that. And I I think that, um, I mean, my position on that is, is, is right on. Now, if you are concerned about detecting bullshit and to the extent that it it does influence not only your attitudes and your opinions, but your behaviors, you're going to have a very, very difficult time if you're not open-minded and you're not willing to listen to the other side, whether that be political or, or um, economical or, you know, how to raise children versus how to explore careers, all kinds of things. If we're so narrow-minded in these types of things, we're, we're, we're very it's very difficult to to let anything in to challenge our way of thinking and if we're narrow-minded uh we're we're more likely to make suboptimal decisions in life whether it be what whatever career to pursue or who to date who to marry um you know what to what to eat what not to eat um so absolutely open-mindedness but to to a limit gosh i don't know about your household but in my household what's for dinner is maybe <laughs> one of the most bullshit questions that we ask on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis yeah i mean and certainly i mean people have they have lives right they they make dozens of decisions every day it's not going to be feasible to have an informed well-informed opinion about everything Mm-hmm. You know, that it's just it's we're not going to be able to function. So I would say, well, is this decision, is it important to me, to the people that I love and care about? Or is, you know, how important is this decision? And, and I would prioritize it that way. I mean, the, the things the re, one of the reasons why we have so much exposure to bullshit today is because of this sort of this implicit obligation to have an opinion about everything. And everything is just so large today i mean since the beginning of the internet especially i mean people had opinions and and attitudes about all kinds of things before the internet right Mm -hmm. but but you know nuclear energy um war capital punishment i mean everybody everyone had opinions about those things they were expected to have opinions but today we're we're still supposed to have opinions about those things, but now we're also supposed to have opinions as to whether or not Game of Thrones should 
add another season or <laughs> whether or not people can carry dogs in their purses or whether or not Kim Kardashian should be famous or not and whether or not her sisters should be allowed to digitally modify their pictures on Instagram. I mean, the, the, what everything is today is just so overwhelming that, that I think this is one of the reasons why we have so much exposure to bullshit because people still feel obligated to have an opinion about everything. And of course it's impossible to have a well-informed opinion about everything. And everything is just so large today, including what we're going to decide uh, to have for dinner. The dog thing has gotten way out of hand. But to your point, I think people don't realize that an opinion on a subject can be, I don't know. That's an acceptable opinion, especially if you don't know. Absolutely. And talking about open-minded, that might be one of the most open-minded things is to say, well, gee, I don't need to have an opinion about this right now. Let me take a look. uh, Let me come back to you in a a few days with a well-informed opinion. Um, and I think you have to feel, you have to, in, you know, integrate that open-mindedness just for a few seconds to give yourself the license to say that, you know, or to say, I don't know, or actually Trey, what I said, uh, last week, that was wrong. You know, people are those two things. I don't know. And I was wrong are very difficult to say, and they don't, they, they don't coincide very well with the two motives that we have that promote bullshit. And that is the, if you take a look at social psychological research, the two motives, social motives that are often the strongest is the motive to be correct and the motive to be consistent. And to say, I don't know, or to say I was wrong conflicts with both of those motives Mm. because it suggests, well, you weren't correct. And well, now you're not being consistent either. Right. And, and people have problems with that, especially if they publicize, their opinions. One of the best things you could do is to keep some of your opinions and attitudes private because <laughs> then it's much easier to then to, to flip, right? And, and, you, and we don't feel as though we have to double down on a bullshit-based assertion or claim that we made two weeks ago that our, that our colleagues or friends or family are going to hold us to. And that's part, of, that's part of the reason why people tend to double down on their bullshit is because everyone else is expecting them to to be correct and to be consistent. All right, I wanted to get back to something that was brought up at the start of this conversation. You write about this specifically at the end of the book, and that is that in order for us to really embrace the idea of bullshit, call out bullshit, and yeah. really prove bullshitters wrong, we need to get beyond this idea that bullshit is an offensive word and we also need to get beyond the idea that bullshit is a funny word, too. I would like to posit an alternative theory to what you are suggesting here. It can and should be a funny word because its humor can be humbling to the person who is offended when what they're peddling is called out as bullshit. Do you agree with this in any way, shape, or form? Well, to some extent, I agree, Trey. I, I, I've argued also that until we begin to treat bullshit like we do lies with the same disdain and the same uh, same level of anger that we're going to continue being exposed to more lie or more bullshit than even than than we are lies um i do think that 
that um, the behavior of calling bullshit too doesn't even have to involve the word bullshit. You know, if actually the more considerate we are and and to say like, well, yeah, all right, Trey, that something you said earlier, we, we, it's obvious we could both see the problems with that now. And, and, and you know what, I used to think that too, you know, and, and you just make it a softer landing, Mm. right. To give people the, the license to reword or, or rethink something that they've communicated you know, to revise it, the, the easier that we can do that, which also is more likely to happen in private than it is public. Uh, rarely are you going to see that happen in public. So, so you make it a softer landing, you, you stay considerate and willing to attack the claim or the assertion, not the person. Um, or and, and again, to make it a softer landing by saying, yeah, I can see how you came to that conclusion at first. Well, that's because you didn't know about these, you know, what just happened yesterday. Right. And now, and, and so I can see how you, you know, and, and you just make it uh, a, an error in reasoning, uh, an honest error in reasoning than, Hey, yeah, you, you were bullshitting us, Trey. And, and boy, are you stupid? Right. I mean, that, that is, that's not going to be very helpful. People are going to double and triple down then on their bullshit. Yeah, uh, name calling yeah. is a big part of the problem. It's part of the reason why we can't have dial I mean certainly not on social media, but in yes. general we can't have dialogue because so quickly somebody runs out of counterpoints that inevitably they're going to turn to name calling and it can be somewhat harm- harmless by saying, "Well, you're just a liberal, or you're just a conservative, you know, throw the uh, political ideologies out there," or it beca- can become much more harsh with cussing involved. Absolutely. 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 And, and I don't think um, one thing I do want to make clear, too, is that not all forms of bullshit are equally harmful. I mean, they certainly vary. And so this is another place where I, I would sort of prioritize. Like if if it if we said something like that's generally, I think, harmless and if anything, potentially beneficial, you know, in the summertime, we tell children, you know, Trey, uh, they put a special compound in that swimming pool water uh, so as to reveal the presence of urine to catch people peeing in the pool to the extent that that prevents a few of us from peeing in the pool i think that's actually a good thing right but as as most children learn that's that's not true you know but 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 that i think that has some some potential benefit or or if somebody says you know trey in 1982 i could throw a football over a mountain I mean, it's it's going to receive some rolling eyes and maybe some people will be annoyed, but it's 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 generally pretty harmless. Right. But if I said to you something that's that I would say is bad bullshit, um, it does have potential harm. Like my example I've used is, is, did you see her face? Who would vote for a face like that? Right. I mean, that dehumanizes, it objectifies women, it suggests and it implies that they can't be good leaders unless they're attractive. Right. Now, so that so that's just that's bad bullshit. Right. That that, that I think that should be addressed. But then there's worse. There's something that we would say is, is it's dangerous. It is able and likely to cause harm to the extent that you use the content of the bullshit and as a prescription for behavior. So some people will tell you, Trey, I can text on my phone. 
without any effect on my performance. And you know what? Everyone does it. I don't see the problem. Right. And I, my response is no, no, no. None of those things, those things are true. Uh, they're not supported by the, the data. And it's a flippant response to otherwise com very compelling data that shows that no one can drive while texting or goofing around playing video games on their phone without their performance being affected. Okay. And it, and it, it is likely to lead to very bad decisions. Um, and so again, that type, so I would say the, so the, the dangerous and the bad bullshit should be addressed. You know, I would be happy with that. Yeah. We could leave the, the relatively harmless and, and the uncle Larry and, and bad, you know, dad jokes and things like that. We could probably leave alone. Great points there. And for the record, I want all of my leaders to be as unsightly as possible so they're not operating on any, any sort of uh, pretty person rules. You know? <laughs> uh, final question, John. Do you think this book set a Guinness record for the number of times bullshit was written in a book? Oh, gee, I haven't thought of that. Possibly. I tried to use it as least as possible, because I, th I think it, you don't really need to use the term a lot of, a lot of the time. I think when people are saying, well, gee, yeah, this, this particular content, it's not connected at all to a concern for truth. That just sounds, uh, that kind of sounds crazy, right? So, so there's probably a, three times as many instances where I didn't use the word, where mm. it was just quite obvious that, you know, once the definition is out there, that, that, that it doesn't really need to be used. Um, but I, I do think it, it is very important to recognize the, the difference between uh, lies and bullshit. So we think of, of, of bullshit a lot of times as, as though they're lies, but it's, it's not a lie. So the liar is actually concerned with truth, and they want to detract us from truth altogether. But the bullshitter doesn't care about the truth, right? They're not paying attention to it. So just by chance, by accident, in some cases, the bullshitter is actually correct, but even they wouldn't know it, right? Because they're not paying attention to truth, evidence, or established knowledge. And, and that, that I think by definition, you can say is, is much, much more uh, prevalent in society. It's easier to do that. It's much harder to connect everything that we communicate to truth, evidence, and, and, uh, and, and established knowledge. Uh, so lying is not as frequent, um, and it's, it, it is obviously insidious, but by definition, bullshitting is much more frequent, and, and so perhaps it could have been used uh, you know, five or six more times than it was used in the book, but yeah, I tried to keep it at the right. But yeah, if I made, if I made the record, uh, that would be great. He is John Petricelli, an experimental social psychologist and professor of psychology at Wake Forest University who specializes in studying bullshit. He's also the author of the new book, The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit. John, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this important book. All right. Thanks, Trey. Thanks for having me. Join me next time when I speak with Paleo FX co-founder Keith Norris on his new book, Primal Uprising. The Paleo FX Guide to Optimizing Your Health, Expanding Your Mind, and Reclaiming Your Freedom. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. 
You can listen, learn, and connect for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.